Welcome to the 1CA podcast. This is your host, Jack Gaines. 1CA is a product of the Civil Affairs Association and brings in people who are current or former military, diplomats, development officers, and field agents to talk about working the last three feet of foreign relations. Our goal is to inspire anyone interested in working on ground with partner nations and their people. To contact the show, email us at capodcasting at gmail.com or look us up on the Civil Affairs Association website at www.civilaffairsassos.org. I'll have both of those in the show notes. So now, enjoy. Today we have Brian Hancock as the guest host. Brian is interviewing Marine Major Robert Bedreau, an attorney and civil affairs officer who deployed with the 31st MEU. Being an attorney for the federal government in his civilian career, Rob wanted me to note that the interview is an informal discussion that represents only his views and does not represent the views of the United States government, the Department of Defense, the Marine Corps, or any other components. So beyond that, there's a lot of great stuff. So enjoy the show. Thank you, Major Brio, and again, welcome to the show. I understand that you just recently returned the 31st from you, and that the 31st has a somewhat unusual mission that they perform for the Corps, uh, and also an interesting relationship with the 3rd Marine Expeditionary Force, or MEP, that they support. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, thanks, Brian. Sure thing. Just to provide a little bit of context, at the time I deployed, I was a Civil Affairs Detachment Commander with 4th Civil Affairs Group out of Miami, Florida. So that's a reserve unit. I served there for about four years. And I attached to the 31st MU as an augment of a Civil Affairs Detachment. So looking first at uh, the 31st MU and 3MEF and where they fit into the competition continuum, I think it's helpful to look at the, the MEF's mission statement, which is that the MEF provides the United States with a forward deployed force and readiness in the Pacific theater as a globally responsive, expeditionary, and fully scalable marine air ground task force, that is a MAGTAF, capable of generating, deploying, and employing forces for crisis response, forward presence, major combat operations, and campaigns. 3MEF is headquartered in Okinawa, so when you think about what the Marine Corps is currently doing in the Pacific region, can't ignore what that means for having you know, a large headquarters element out there in that strategic location. The 31st MU is similarly headquartered on Okinawa. Now, for those less familiar with a MAGTAF, what, what that looks like, you know, the MAGTAF is made up of an aviation, logistics, infantry combat, and a headquarters element. So those four elements, they can, they can come in different sizes, so to speak. So we mentioned scalable. A method, you're looking at like a division level. Uh, you've got division level units supporting it. The next echelon below that would be a brigade. So 3MEB, 3rd Marine Expeditionary Brigade, is also headquartered out there. And then below that is the 31st MU. So the 31st MU has an infantry battalion, uh, an aviation squadron, a logistics battalion supporting it, as well as the headquarters element. So the MU is also going to be paired up as an expeditionary unit. It's paired up with a Navy amphibious group. So when the Navy patrols with a MU attached, together they're embarked on you know, several ships prepared for whatever uh, naval operations need to be conducted. So typically a MEF has three subordinate MUs um, and runs at a really high tempo. So whereas the other MUs typically go through a one-year period of workup, patrol, the 31st MU does it every six months. So you're talking really compressed timelines to get the MU to integrate with the Navy presence and activity within the Pacific. So whether that means partnering with the Japanese self-defense forces to conduct training or engaging in humanitarian operations in response to tropical storms or participating in joint and multinational exercises, you know, as some examples, the 31st MU is always ready to execute whatever mission is called for in the moment. Now, looking a little bit more at the 31st MU and how it views itself, 
it considers itself the premier crisis response force in the Pacific. Its motto is ready, partnered, and lethal, which I think summarizes pretty much um, what they're trying to accomplish and how they view their, their strategic importance in the world. So thinking about that phrase, ready, partnered, and lethal, I think there's a lot you can unpack as to how the MU ties into the national security strategy. And as that trickles down through the defense strategy, the Indo-Pacific strategy, and the MU is really the tactical translation of what the objectives in those strategies looks like. So as we think about what the competition landscape looks like and what it means not just for the Marine Corps, but for the United States to maintain that persistent forward presence, to build credibility in the region as a partner of choice, and to be ready as a crisis response force, the 31st MU is really the tip of the spear for the Marine Corps. Thanks for that, Major Bordeaux. A fascinating mission. And that persistent forward presence of the 31st MU puts them in an ideal position to, I would suspect, manage the increasing number of worldwide crises and national disasters we're having that are resulting in humanitarian assistance, disaster relief. Uh, we, we could obviously drop the 82nd by air very quickly, but if we drop those Army forces in there as opposed to the Marines off the MU, they would suck resources out of the limited resources available in a crisis, whereas the MU can, can leave the ship, do good work, not bring resources, and then, then return to the ship. So that is an, a, an increasingly critical mission that uh, you, you've been part of. Can you tell us a little bit about your specific role in that mission, as, as well as how you prepared in that workup for the mission? Yeah, absolutely. I'll, br- I'll break down the two parts of that and first talk about what uh, the Civil Affairs mission was. So within the MU, in the, uh, I'll call it a little bit informal because you know civil affairs is kind of a bolt-on uh, capability in many ways. But uh, where we shook out is we became part of the S3 operations section, and then specifically we fell inside the operations in the information environment, the OIE cell. So any effects that we sought to achieve were coordinated with the lead OIE planner. On my patrol, we had a major who was chopped over to us from uh, 3MIG. That's the Marine Information Group that sits in Okinawa and supports FreeMeth. And then within the OIE cell, we also had our public affairs folks, or as the Marine Corps has rebranded it, strategic communications or Comstrat. So we had our, our public affairs team, as well as uh, a technical information operations officer and a psychological operations team as well. So when we embarked, that was our unit, and everything that we were looking to accomplish would go directly into the operations section, and that's how we'd integrate across the MAGTAP. In addition, we also had a space marine. Yes, those exist. We had a space marine come and augment us uh, when we were underway from Space Force. So looking at the 31st MUSE mission, and particularly where we think civil affairs has a fit into the competition context, I knew that I'd be wearing two hats. Thinking about readiness, a major focus of the 31st MUSE is to certify every embarking subordinate unit uh, in the ability to conduct the MUSE mission essential tasks. So what that meant in practical terms for me is that I had to be ready to be a utility player. So within the operations section, I wore two hats. I was both the lead civil affairs planner as well as the current OPSO to a large extent. As the current OPSO, you know, I had to maintain a focus on training, on operations in a short window, you know, who needs to be where, where, where we had folks located, what we need to support, et cetera. And then as the civil affairs planner, I was also responsible for, you know, keeping an eye on the world, coordinating with other units in the area, USAID, other folks, things that were going on in the civil environment, and making sure that those considerations were integrated in all aspects of planning, executing, both in terms of actually going on the patrol as well as training. We'll get more into that in a little bit here. So then shifting to the second part of your question about preparing for the deployment. So as many deployments go, there is nothing perfect or ideal about it. But, you know, Semper Gumby, Marines adapt. They work with whatever they've got, and they go after the mission. So 
while we were called a detachment uh, in the table of organization, realistically, that just meant two packs. So it was me and a sergeant, and that makes up our detachment. So I knew from the start that if we were called on, or as we were called on to execute civil affairs tasks, we'd be really relying on uh, everyone else in the MAGTAF, as well as any partners that we were able to coordinate with on the outside, to be able to achieve outsized effects. And then another interesting aspect was that I was paired up with a Marine from a different unit. So we didn't have any experience drilling or conducting field exercises, any of that stuff together prior to meeting during pre-deployment training in in California. So I was paired with Sergeant Leah Henning. She's an NCO civil affairs specialist out of 3rd Civil Affairs Group in Great Lakes. And in hindsight, it was actually a terrific match. So Sergeant Henning, like every other Marine, had cross-trained into civil affairs. Uh, Her prior specialty was artillery. So she understood effects up until the point of coming into civil affairs. Effects for her were always uh, understood in a kinetic context. So what an artillery round is accomplishing as opposed to what effect is a particular message having on a population group. But through that lens, she was able to integrate well with our PSYOP team, with our OIE folks, uh, looking at achieving effects in the information environment as opposed to the physical environment. Getting more into the specifics of workup, you know, is fairly routine. You're talking going to shooting ranges talking to the docs, making sure that your damaged or missing gear is taken care of. But the other thing we wanted to do is make sure that we had a good rep, a good transfer of authority with the folks that we were replacing. So not only did we get on Zoom calls with the outgoing civil affairs detachment, I found out who the the previous three detachment commanders were going back through patrols, and I reached out to every single one of them and said, hey, give me your after action. Let me know what to expect. What are the patterns like in the new? What were some of the things you were able to accomplish? things you left behind, what can I expect, and make sure that I'm integrated both in the battle rhythm and in the real world as we get ready for this patrol. So a lot of information all at once, but I think some parts of it were fairly routine, but other aspects we want to make sure that we left the civil affairs footprint as soon as we got to the MEW. I'd like to dig into the workup just a little bit more in the training. We do that a lot in both the uh, Army and the Marine Corps. We have a number of traditional challenges that I suspect are tracking. And when we go to particularly validate civil affairs capabilities at service level and joint level exercises, these exercises often don't contain a lot of civil affairs content. And typically, they lack the analytical strength and staff to model complex civil systems and the resulting impacts from fires and maneuver. Did you experience this in your workup? And if so, what did you do about it? In my time at Fort CAG, we went through these same concerns. So the CAG supports tabletop exercises in California, in North Carolina, TUMEF, uh, out there at the training center in San Diego. And as you point out, these are, these are routine problems where there's not necessarily a focus to make sure that civil affairs is hitting their mets. So depending on you know, how many folks we sent to support these kind of exercises, oftentimes we're able to decide what additional training value we're able to achieve on our own. You know, we're not trying to outshine anybody or anything like that. A lot of it is internal and just trying to make our profession work better. But we start building those things in ourselves. So whether it's, you know, anticipating possible injects or creating our own internal fragos to create our own civil considerations, those are things that we think about uh, right from the start. So whereas your service level or your joint folks are often focused on achieving battlefield dominance or solving complex logistics problems or, hey, how do we integrate this new capability? We're looking early at, hey, here's where civil affairs is likely to plug in in the scenario. Here's, you know, things that we should start anticipating. And let's make this more meaningful for ourselves, even if the MAGTAF isn't necessarily thinking in terms of, hey, where is civil affairs going to fit and how do we make sure that those guys trained up? 
So to give you a real simple example, as we went through the certification exercises for the MU to be able to check the box that, hey, they're ready to go out on patrol, the combat lead battalion that was with us, CLB-31, they were the lead element to conduct assessments supporting a humanitarian assistance survey team, a HAST, uh, as part of a notional disaster response scenario during one of the certification evolutions. So what the MU did, and where VA guys to take a, a greater role in this, is we were reaching out. So Nina Kessler, USAID Civil Military Liaison, um, she works closely with the MEF, with the MEB, with the MU. We reached out to her and said, hey, would you like to participate in this? You know, Can you help the MU make this training more realistic? And Nina's fantastic. No matter who she's talking to, within 15 minutes, you just received a mini Jayhawk. Like, you know what USAID does. You know what disaster response looks like for, for the U.S. And now you understand specifically, hey, here's how the military plugs in. The other thing we did was we created our own scenario index. For example, we drafted Fragos. You need to anticipate that based on the scenario. There's going to be a displaced persons problem that you're going to have to deal with, whether that's setting up a displaced civilians camp or, you know, considering how this is going to interfere with maneuver or with other disaster response. You know, we had a good relationship working the staff process. I go to the CLB 31 OPSO and I say, hey, you got some downtime out there in the field? Consider using this. And they were grateful for that because they also understand that if we're thinking about the problems they're going to face, it's going to make them more effective if we have to conduct civil affairs tasks real world. So by creating these injects, we would develop our own civil affairs concept of operations, which were kind of internal. So when I say internal, it gave us a product to share with the OIE folks. So when you're in a planning session or sending out an augment to support the HAST, the OIE folks could look at you and say, hey, now I know exactly what you're doing because I've got it here in front of me. I can take this. I can take your objectives. And I can now build those into the larger OIE picture. And then it's also available to be disseminated to the, to the MU. Another thing that we touched on briefly is integration. So we were lucky to have some really enthusiastic folks from the MIG that are really excited about getting out and doing things in the information environment. And civil affairs opens up a lens that oftentimes they're not able to, uh, to use as much as they'd like because many of the authorities that the MIG has to go through to conduct OIE becomes an obstacle. You're talking multiple layers of review, authorization authorities potentially at the highest level, level of government. Civil affairs does not necessarily have those concerns because civil military operations, they're inherent in any military task. So when you have somebody whose job is to think about, hey, where, where can we use this capability and it affects the information environment, it creates a lot of value there for the MIG. Something I've wanted to ask you, because I, I could see this as a risk to a mission, or maybe it's an opportunity. When you have an expeditionary force like the Marine Corps uh, in actual terrain where uh, disasters and conflict happens, it seems to me you could move from what started as a training mission to dealing with a real-world event very quickly, just, just a very, almost a flick of a switch. Did you experience that at all? in your time on the 31st MU, how did they prepare for what is a foreseeable uh, potential risk to mission? Yeah, absolutely. So we did have exactly that experience. For context, the MUs, when they go through this certification for patrol, they actually go through three iterations of exercises. So for us, our certification pipeline, if you will, that cycle went over the Christmas and New Year's holidays. And during that time, there was a real-world typhoon that came up. So you already had kind of a foundation of trust because the MU had already been through that initial step of going through a variety of mission sets together. And then what do you know? Here's a potential humanitarian disaster that we could be called on. So as you can imagine, it's going to go through the exact same steps you did in training if you did it right. Do we train like we fight or do we fight like we train? You know, hopefully we're on the right side of that equation. So for us, it was the same thing. We bring in all the staff, all the planning staff, and we go through the R2P2 planning process. 
and start thinking about, hey, you know, who are we going to have to call back? Who's going on leave? Who's not on leave? What is the asset readiness for, for the squadron? Do we have all of our, our vehicles ready to go? What does the timeline look like? What's the, the time, space, distance? How long is it going to take us to get to this particular region? So we work through it, just like in training. And we're going to go through all the considerations, fill out the, the 60, 70, 80% solution, whatever information we have available, go through that and be ready for this potential real-world mission, which could interrupt the patrol cycle. But as you point out, that's why we're there, to do the real-world stuff. The training gets us there and makes us more ready, but at the end of the day, we're there not just to check the boxes or hit the wickets. Our job is to be to be ready to respond. Uh, something that comes to my mind, you are likely tracking in 2017, Congress passed the Women, Peace, and Security Act, and later DOD created implementation guidance for that in 2020, and civil affairs has a big role in Women, Peace, and Security did you do anything or your team do anything with the women, peace, and security lines of effort during the 31st MUSE deployment? And if so, could you share some lessons learned in that area for the rest of the civil affairs community? Absolutely. Uh, as you pointed out, women, peace, and security is the framework for approaching vulnerable populations in general. So the act focuses specifically on women and girls. And the fundamental concept there is that can't achieve stability anywhere if you ignore the voices of literally half your population. If you cut the women and girls out of the conversation or you're not protecting their interests, ensuring basic human rights, then you're never going to achieve lasting stability. So the Marine Corps has various military occupations, especially MOS codes. There's additional ones within civil affairs, both for planning, which is an additional course, as well as um, for being a female engagement officer or female engagement specialist. Um, so I had been through the training uh, the summer before my deployment to obtain the female engagement officer MOS. So WPS was something that was very familiar to us at Fort CAG, and we had all started thinking about how does this affect our mission? What are the things we should be thinking about? So during our pre-deployment training, me and Sergeant Henning, uh, I actually assisted her with going through the training to get the female engagement specialist MOS. And I also basically laid out as a challenge, like, hey, this is, this is a real cool evolving area of civil affairs. You know, let's see what we can do to bring this to the MU and make it part of their mission. So what we did at the, the MU is we basically try to find a way to, to make that part of the typical considerations, but also to make it almost a staff function. So I think what this really plays out is from the example of female engagement teams. As many of our, our listeners are going to be familiar with, during the War on Terror, the Army, the Marine Corps created what were called female engagement teams. So these were basically tailor-made civil affairs teams that were responsible specifically for going out and talking to females in the, in the village, the moms, the, you know, the tribal leaders' wives, the girls, teenagers, getting information about what, trying to find out what additional things are going on that the intelligent folks weren't able to get through traditional means, but also looking specifically at what those needs were that the women were facing that weren't necessarily being understood by military leadership. So using that model, and I talked about the Afghanistan drawdown, it's funny because female engagement teams made a rebirth in the United States of all places with the 50,000 or so Afghan refugees that came in. So at the different bases that we had brought refugees to, Fort McCoy in Wisconsin, uh, Fort Lee in Virginia, Quantico, at each of those locations, there were female engagement teams stood up to support the refugees, help them through the resettlement process, address any particular needs that were there. So what we did for the MU, understanding that the MU is really looking at the global theater strategic level competition, we thought that a provisional female engagement team capability would be a good fit. So, you know, kind of the example, the tactical examples I'm talking about, going out and talking and finding out what the medical needs or the supply needs are in a particular community, that's not necessarily something that the MU is doing every day, but it's something that needs to be ready to do. So what we did was we created an off-the-shelf, basically, capability 
for the MU and created an SOP that can be used in two ways. First of all, as a planning tool to integrate the WPS considerations in planning, but also to have what the team would look like. Here's something you can actually reconstitute every time the MAGTAF goes out and rebuild female engagement team to be used where those targeted, targeted civil affairs activities need to be conducted. So the SOP that we created, uh, this is something that we actually submitted to the Marine Corps Center for Lessons Learned. So anyone with a CAC who's able to access the website can go there and, again, search for 31st MU, female engagement team, and you'll find our SOP. You'll find our after action from the patrol as well. But in that SOP, we go through planning considerations. So a lot of these we borrowed from NATO and Army publications, and we go line by line like, hey, here are the questions that you should be asking during an OPT, during an operational planning team meeting. Here's some of the considerations you should have. And then on the other side of that, hey, what is a female engagement team actually going to look like as a tactically employable, effective small unit? Well, let's look at some of the considerations for selecting team members. What particular skills should we be looking at for Marines and sailors that could be called on to be part of that team? What does the training package look like? Are there language things that we need to work through? Where are we going to get interpreters? Do we need to do a shooting package to make sure that they're able to you know, provide internal security? Things of that nature. So then the female engagement team would have two focuses, really, first being ready to conduct those tailored missions, if you will, but also to integrate with the planning staff and say, here are the additional considerations that you need to think about through the uh, women, peace, and security lens. And we were really fortunate on the patrol. We actually got to look at this real world. So going back to earlier this year, 2022, around April, I had the opportunity to participate in site surveys in the initial planning conference for Exercise Commandog 6, which was ultimately conducted in, in the Philippines back in uh, October, about six months after I had the opportunity to go down. But what I did over those two weeks was I was like, hey, this is an opportunity to actually look at WPS objectives. You know, so whether it's looking at, hey, how is the U.S. modeling integration and diversity? How are we modeling that for our partners? So at the planning conference, we had folks, obviously, from the Philippine Marine Corps and Navy. We had uh, Marines with services represented there. We had Republic of Korea Marines who were there. And then there were other nations that were looking to be involved as well. So that actually gave a, you know, a practical opportunity, like, hey, let's, let's look at what WPS looks like. So not only are we modeling WPS and what those values look like and should look like to the rest of the world, what can we do to encourage our partners? And so there was no template for this, but I wrote up an assessment basically memo format. Here, here's the considerations. Here's the objectives that we're looking to achieve through the WPS framework, you know, as laid out in the DOD guidance. And here, here are my observations. And then what I did with that was I shared it with hires. So not only is it internal to the MU, so it became a reference for the next patrol that ultimately conducted the exercise, but it's something that was shopped to hire. So like you folks are looking at activities all over the world. Here's my observations of how we did and how our partners are doing with this particular exercise. So we were actually able to push that up multiple levels all the way up to, to the Indo-PACOM staff. And I think they were appreciative that, honestly, folks down at our level were even thinking about it. So it was well, well received. And then in addition to that, to kind of put the bow on what we try to accomplish uh, during our patrol, Sergeant Henning and I co-wrote a paper, Female Engagement Teams, and what sustaining that really looks like in a competition context. And we're looking forward to that being published in the January 2023 edition of the Marine Corps Gazette. Great material. I look forward to reading some of those articles myself. I believe you and Sergeant Henning are publishing several to aid the community. One of the things I always have to ask, of course, touches on assessments. This is a very hot area for Department of Defense. And historically, civil affairs has struggled to deliver scientifically valid uh, measures of effectiveness. A fair number of measures of performance, but measures of effectiveness has been somewhat elusive. And it's a complicated problem set involving collection, analysis, and elements of presentation. Can you tell us what type of assessments uh, you were able to conduct in the 31st MU 
And what do you see as the next step in moving the science of CAMOE forward? Absolutely. And thinking about, you know, looking specifically at civil affairs, one of the constant struggles is trying to determine, you know, realistic and useful measures of performance. You know, that's your data. That's your raw data. What are we actually accomplishing? What are we getting out? Is our messaging getting out? Are we conducting a sufficient number of engagements? Are we actually doing things that we need to be doing? And then coupled with that is the, the measure of effectiveness, which feeds into assessments. Like not only are we doing the tasks that we are, we're ordered to do and we're trying to, to do effectively, but are we accomplishing the ultimate objective? What is the, the end state that we're trying to reach? So I think one of the things we always struggle with is, especially with typical deployment cycles, is you're looking at shortened time horizons. So for us, it's a six-month patrol. What can we realistically expect for particular activities that we're doing? Are, are we taking the, the right view of what we're doing and what, what we can accomplish? When you think about the information environment, you're really talking about influencing hearts and minds. And are we getting folks to, to understand what we're trying to accomplish? And are they actually coming on board with that, achieving what we wanted to? I think what that translates down to for civil affairs is not just about collecting data, but you need to look at trends over a period of time. When you think about, you know, to give a simple example, you know, taking an assessment framework where you're looking at, did we achieve the objective we were looking to do? You know, breaking down a problem set, applying a civil affairs lens, and then trying to understand whether you're, you're, you're achieving the objective that you want. Looking at a specific example like bombed out power plants in a particular area. You know, are we getting electricity online? Are we measuring that in terms of dollars spent? Can the local community get a certain number of kilowatts pumped out to this particular community? Okay, that's, that's a nice data point but are we achieving the longer-term objectives? It's hard to put a scientific brand or stamp of approval, if you will, on that, because a lot of that is kind of softer skills. That's, that's a lot of what civil affairs deals with is soft skills. As much as we'd like to use that data analytics-driven stuff, sometimes we know what right looks like through experience. Here's how we know we're being effective in this particular area, because our partners invited us back. And a lot of those effects that you're looking at, it's getting translated up over time to things that have strategic-level impacts. So I understand that I'm kind of giving you a shotgun answer to your question, but for us in the civil affairs community, and I, I think kind of always working through those, you know, fundamentals and making sure that you're capturing what you're doing, turning it over to the folks who replace you, and making sure that, that information is disseminated, being analyzed, and then pushing it up higher where appropriate. Those are the kind of realistic expectations, I think, from a Marine Corps perspective, trying to make sure that our, our measures of effectiveness are being met. And then over time, if the process is being followed right, your assessments are going to build off that, where you're going to be able to see, this is what the objective was, here's the exercise timeline, here's the things we were trying to accomplish, hey, here's what this community looks like nowadays, here's what's happening when we want to go and do things there, here's their attitudes, things like that. you got to look at it from a, a whole of MAGTAF, whole of service, every environment, every domain approach, it's going to matter what Comstrat's doing, it's going to matter what you know our embassy folks are doing, we're going to have to take all that information into account. When you're, when you're ultimately going through the assessment process and seeing if you've been effective? Assessments are just a very thorny problem, but funding now is often tied with demonstrating return on investment through assessment. So I suspect we'll be returning to this conversation many times in civil affairs. And one of the perennial problems, of course, is if one deployment produces some civil effects, it sometimes takes years to fully realize the potential of that. But years later, the follow-on Units don't assess oftentimes what was done by previous units. We don't have that continuity for long-term assessments. We're going to need to figure out how to do that better, I think, as an enterprise within the Department of Defense. I have one last question for you. One of the very novel things the Marine Corps has done is they've done some key uh, investments of tanks and other assets 
to build new formations aligned to the realities of modern warfare, particularly in U.S. Indo-PACOM. One of the innovations that they've come up with is the Marine Littoral Regiment, or MLR, and they have a new operating concept called Expeditionary Advanced Base Operations, EABO. What do you see from your foxhole as the role of civil affairs in the MLR, as well as within the EABO construct? Sure thing. And to lean on another weak analogy, but common phrase is we're building the airplanes, we're flying it, right? So we have the doctrine. We've got all these things that are coming out, right? The Naval Operating Concept, Force Design 2030, EBO. So yeah, lots of learning going on at all levels of the Marine Corps, civil affairs, especially recognizing that we have such a tiny footprint. I think the most important thing uh, from my perspective for civil affairs is that the small unit training is where it's going to have kind of an outsized impact. So when you're looking at distributed operations, you're talking about potentially tuned squad team size elements in diverse locations. How do you make sure that those folks are conducting civil military operations to the extent they need to, to make themselves more effective? Well, it's going to depend on that small unit training. Just to put a fine point on it, I can tell you right now, every infantry battalion out there, every S4 officer, their supply guys are all thinking about, hey, how am I going to get stuff to my guys in the field? What are they going to be kind of left on their own to deal with? And inevitably, what that means is that, hey, there's going to be a lot of activity in that civil environment. Do they have the tools that they need? Are they able to interact the way that they need to? Are they getting the information about the civil environment that they need to? So there's a lot of layers on that, and it's going to be tons and tons of really good work that civil affairs folks are going to be able to provide to support those missions as they come up. But in addition to that, it puts an onus on civil affairs folks to make sure that the training is getting out so that we've got a small contingent of civil affairs Marines that can't be everywhere at once. How do I make sure that this specialized capability is being executed and is available to this small unit that's in a, a distance location that I'm not able to get to right away? So I think there's three kind of legs to this. First of all, you've got your preparation of the battle space, right? You've got IPB, intelligence prep. Well, feeding into that is your, your civil prep of the battle space. So thinking about who are the players in the area? What are the people groups? What are the languages? What does the economy look like? What, what are those really important factors that are going to matter to distributed units? What do they need to be ready for? So that's step one is not only are they going to get the brief from the two, but we need to make sure that civil affairs, civil considerations are being built into that product, into that information as it's disseminated. On top of that, we want to make sure that people are understanding civil military operation tasking. So just because you're sending a team out to do whatever mission that may have kinetic aspects, you also need to be aware that they're, they're in a civil environment. Now it's on that small unit leader to understand what civil affairs tasks he may be required to accomplish. So making sure that that's understood by the staff and is built into the orders development process. And then finally, I already hit on this training is going to be everything, making sure that, that folks are, are ready to execute when the time comes. Outstanding download. I am smarter by the minute listening to you tell us how you have succeeded in, in the mission set that you're provided. You've given the audience a number of things to think about, as well as some uh, documents that have been published and are upcoming publications if they want to review more. I uh, appreciate everything that you're doing for us. Uh, we've got to remember that uh, we're one team. doesn't matter what uniform you wear. We always do everything joint combined. Thanks for coming on the show today. Semper Fi. I really appreciate it, guys. Thanks again for listening to the 1CA podcast. Our show is a production of the Civil Affairs Association. If you are interested in coming on the show or guest hosting an episode, email us at capodcasting at gmail.com. I'll have that email and the Civil Affairs Association website in the show notes. And to all our folks in diplomacy, development, defense, and operations, working on ground to build those relationships with partner nations and their people, 
thank you for all you do. This is your host, Jack Gaines. Until next time, have a great week.